Okay. All right. This morning, I'm gonna I'm gonna read from First Corinthians fourteen, First Corinthians fourteen, and start in verse six and go to eleven. So First Corinthians fourteen, uh, verse six says, "Now, brethren, he's speaking to those obviously that are born again. They are loved. They are in Christ, and we know, and we've been sharing recently too that." And when God loves us, he's protecting us. The only way that we can be protected and be in control, in proper control, is when God loves us. And so, brethren, that's what that always means, brethren. Those that God loves, just like his son, absolutely no different. Now, brethren, if I come unto you speaking with tongues, here it's languages, by the way. The the Greek word is glossolalia. They're known foreign languages. It's not an angelic tongue. No such thing in the Bible. As a matter of fact, when angels ever appeared, they spoke to men and men understood them. It was never in gibberish at all, an angelic tongue. So if I come speaking to you with, with languages, what will it profit you except I will speak to you either by revelation and notice that. You know, when God speaks to us, Uh, by revelation, he's revealing the love that he has for us that's exactly equal to the love that he loves his son with. That is an awesome thought. And so to speak by revelation, and of course that's going to mean that it's going to be God the Holy Spirit who has to take the things of Christ to show them unto us, and that's by revelation. So by revelation or by knowledge proper knowledge, or by prophesying, uh, preaching, or by doctrine, teaching. And it says, even things without life give sound or give tunes, whether pipe or harp, except they give a distinction in the tunes, the sounds. Notice that, so there's a distinction, it says, in the sounds. How will it be known and experienced what is piped or harped? For if the trumpet give an uncertain sound. Now, this portion here, the Holy Spirit has Paul going back to Numbers, the 10th chapter. If you look at Numbers, the 10th chapter, in those first 10 verses, what we see there is every single thing that Israel did while they were in the wilderness, in the wilderness, and they were delivered from Egypt, the world system, away from, uh, uh, from Pharaoh, who was a type of Satan. Now they're out. They're completely out. Positionally, their position has changed, hasn't it? And they're in the wilderness now. The wilderness is still the world system, and they are on their way to their promised land, just like we are on our way to our heavenly home, and that home has to do with Christ individually with each of us and then together. But there were, there were uh, silver trumpets, and silver in the Bible always speaks of redemption. You see all through Revelations, you will see all kinds of gold being mentioned, but nev- there's no need for silver. Silver's not there because that was something that God was doing in us when we finally got home. And when we got home in his presence face to face in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, it's all gold. <laughs> no silver. We don't need redemption. We've been completely redeemed. But here, they, they were the, the trumpets were made of silver of two pieces and two in the Bible, in a positive sense, means separated from and put into. And so with the silver trumpet, God was 
guiding Israel, every single thing that they did, and they were a tent people, which meant they never settled down on the earth. Their foundation wasn't on the earth. Their foundation was Christ in heaven, their position. And so they were on their way, and they're on their way in, in, the, in the wilderness, and everything they did was based upon those trumpets, a different tune, a different sound. Time to get up, time to eat, time to go worship, time to be taught, time to pack it up, time to go forward, time to stop, time to get ready for a battle. All of that, and you'll see that in Numbers the 10th chapter. That's what's being referred to here. So again, in 1 Corinthians 14, 8, if, for if the trumpet give an uncertain sound, who will prepare himself to the battle? And we know for us, in Ephesians 6, 10 to 18, we, wrestle, we do not wrestle against blood and flesh. That's what it is in the original. That's in Ephesians 6, verse 12. We don't, in any relationship that you and I have as believers, it's never against blood and flesh, the old life. It's always spiritual in nature. <clears throat> we wrestle not against uh, blood and flesh, but against principalities and powers, the rulers of the darkness in this present age, spiritual wickedness in the heights. So in every single relationship that we have, we are positioned in Christ. And when the position is not the equal of the experience, we don't understand spiritual warfare, we make it blood and flesh, and it's not. Never one time. And that's why in 2 Corinthians 10 and verse 4, it says the weapons of our warfare, ours, are not what? Carnal. They are not left up to us. That's why God told Moses when the people began to complain against him, then he turned the complaint to God and God said, listen, listen, you stand still. Don't get involved with it. Stand still. You stand still. Don't think on your own. Don't listen to the wrong voice. There are many voices. We'll see it here. Do not listen to the wrong voice. No, you stand still. And then you will see, you'll be in a place to receive the deliverance that you so desire. Don't go by sight. Can you imagine? They're, they're free. They've been, they've been out of there out of Egypt under Pharaoh. They're in the wilderness and God's leading them. And where do you suppose he led them to? He led them, like he's leading us, to constantly to separate the flesh from who we are in Christ in Hebrews 4, verse 12. What is he doing? He led them to the Red Sea. Here's this huge sea. <laughs> They're singing the song in Exodus 15, verse 1, about the deliverance, you know. But what did he do? He, he led them. They saw the miracle of the Red Sea being opened. Can you just picture, uh, they were in their tents, and many times, if they weren't occupied with God's love, and we, we've been taught recently, all of us, that we know that we're being loved when we're thankful. We know that, right? And we're occupied. But if not, we're occupied with murmuring. Or complaining. Can you imagine? They're in their tents. They're in their tents. God led them to the Red Sea. They looked this way, huge mountain range. How are 2.4 million men, never mind women and children, going to do that? They looked to the right, mountain range. They looked behind Pharaoh's army, hot on their tails. 
Then they start pointing at Moses. You! <laughs> the blame game, that started in Genesis 3. That's where the voices really started, the wrong voice in Genesis 3, 1 to 6. Then Moses, in turn, turns to God, and that's when God said to him, Moses, you listen, you stand still, and you will see the limits of God. Because in Exodus 14, 14, the battle is whose? It's the Lord's. And when it is, then in Exodus 14 and verse 15, you do what? You go forward. You go forward. And it has to be by revelation. It has to be that. Because if not, and we don't receive that, do we go forward? And if we're not going forward, is the neutrality in our Christian life? No. What do we do? We go back. We end up backsliding. So instead of grace being our teacher in Titus 2, 11 and 12, instead of that being our teacher, Jeremiah 2, verse 19, our own backsliding becomes the teacher. Because God was leading them like he leads to us in every area to show us who we are in Christ. He leads us to the area, every single area of self-helplessness and self-hopelessness because we will go right back to depending on ourselves in a heartbeat. In a heartbeat. So here they are, and that's when God said that to him. And there were certain sounds from the trumpet that were very instructive. For us, of course, it is the word of Christ that teaches us. So how, in 1 Corinthians 14a, how will they prepare, be prepared for battle if they don't hear the proper teaching and preaching of the word? They're not prepared. So we, we've said before, when you're in battle, you don't, you don't go to the battle getting dressed. <laughs> you're going to get shot real quick. You have it on. You have all that armor on even before. So that's like for the Christian. Even before, the first thing that we need to do is to give ourselves to prayer. You know, some would say, before I get out of bed and my big toe hits the floor, better be prayer. Absolute dependence. Because if that's not my first thought, what's activated in me? Something about self or circumstances or situations. So here it says, here, so likewise you accept you utter by the tongue, this language, words that are easy. Notice that easy, which means significance. Words easy. And easy here goes back to Matthew 11, verse 28 to 30. And this is what Jesus was telling his disciples. And whosoever would listen and submit to him, he said, come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden. What it's teaching is this. We all, every human being, save the unsaved, all, uh, all labor and are heavy laden. Labor there can mean, in Matthew 11 and verse 28, labor can mean that I am struggling and trying to deal with something. I'm laboring. Heavy laden is, on top of that, others put things on me. <laughs> you ever feel like that? But he says, come unto me. How quickly should we come? How quickly should we obey? How quickly should we submit? How quickly? He said, come unto me. All you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will what? Give you what? Right. Where does rest come from? 
Where does it come from? It comes, first it has to come from God by pure grace because we don't merit, we don't deserve a thing. So when we, we know that when we receive grace, grace in itself has no irritation. First thing it will do will humble me and deal with the irritation. It'll make me untreatable. And so there's no irritation in grace, and that's why when love flows through grace and there's no irritation, it does away with all suspicion. I'm not suspicious about anybody. About anything or anybody. Jesus knew everything. That's why it says in 1 John 3 and verse 20, if our heart, which is our mind, our noose, it's not our cardia, the heart, if my, if my mind condemns me, if and it does, God is greater than my mind and he knows all things. But when I'm loved, when I know and experience his love in 321, then I have confidence in God and there's no suspicion. So suspicion is replaced with confidence totally in him. You know, Jesus was never suspicious. He knew in John 2, 24 and 25, he knew what was in man, but he wasn't suspicious. He just knew it. But it didn't cause suspicion. He loved them. And he, and he loves us. And so here it says, so likewise, you, you, except you utter by tongue, these words of revelation, that's the context now, revealing Christ, who you are in your image, easy to be understood. So again, easy. Come unto me, all you that labor in a heavy laden, result, I will give you rest. Then he says this, what? Take my yoke upon you. I know one thing. When I'm in the flesh, you think I want to be restrained? You think I want to be told? <laughs> restrained? Because that's what the yoke speaks of. Now, again, just remember, and we all need to be remembered, all, every single one of us, the yoke that Jesus was speaking of, he did not have like two yoke of oxen. He did not have a yoke and then say, hey, yoke up with me. Because we know, according to the type in Numbers 19, 1, specifically verse 2, the sacrifice, the red heifer, and the reason it was a red heifer at that point, red, because it spoke of his absolute submission to his father. In that sense, he was, he was a male, but he was still submitted and always did in John 8, verse 29, those things that pleased him. He had a constant submitted will constantly dependent on him. and But that male had to be spotless, no spot, and never a yoke was on it. He never needed to be restrained. Do we need to be restrained? And it's making it clear we do. Take my yoke. And what that means is it's specifically designed by him who knows us far better than we would ever know ourselves. And that's through the, the preaching and teaching and counsel of the word in local assemblies. So he said, take my yoke upon you and learn of me. Can, do I learn without being restrained? I don't learn. And learn of me. Right? So take my yoke upon you and learn of me. For I am what? Meek and lowly. And that means gentle and humble. And then in that place, that particular place where you face me, what do you see? Because his yoke is what? Easy, and his burden is what? His burden's light. How do we do with burdens? We don't do very well. He's the burden bearer. In Psalm 55 and in, in verse 22, you know, he, he 
bears all of our burdens, and he's the burden bearer, the only one in 1 Peter 5 and verse 7. And when I try to bear those burdens that the enemy wants to put on me, he knows by then he can devour me, slaughter me with them in 1 Peter 5 and verse 8. So how will you know what is spoken? Because if you don't, look what it says. You will speak into the air. Who is the prince and power of the air in Ephesians 2.2? 2? You will speak into the air. In other words, that's the voice that you listen to. Every place that says knowledge, that knowledge had to have a voice. And there are, and there are many voices, and we just heard one. <laughs> there are many verse, voices. Now, here is verse 10 in 1 Corinthians 14. There are, it may be so, listen to this one, so many kinds of voices in this world. Satan's world system, many kinds of voices, voices all kinds of teaching, bad teaching, evil teaching. And none of them are without significance. Verse 11, therefore, if I know not, not only know it, See, because I can declare knowledge, but do I experience it? And that takes time. And that takes the patience of God's love in 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 4. It takes proper gentle instruction, which is skill. And uh, when Jesus was looking at Peter, and he said to him, you know what Peter said? When at fir first he gave this great declaration, you know, when he, when he was asked in Matthew 16 and verse 16, who do men say that I am? 15 and 16. And they said, some say you're Elijah, some say you're all these different ones. And then he asked them this, and he's asking us this. He said, then, but here's the principal thing about us. Who do you say I am? Who is he? Who do you say that I am? And Peter piped up. You are the Christ, the Messiah, Mashiach. You're the Messiah, the son of the living God. And immediately, immediately, God, Christ told him, flesh and blood, blood and flesh did not reveal that to you. Huh. There's nothing that can be revealed to us when we function in the flesh. We will just not be in a place to receive it. We could care less for it, all of us, in the flesh. But in Christ, very hungry. But my father, he said in heaven, there was a voice he heard. They heard the voice, remember? They, they, they heard that voice in Matthew 3, 16 and 17. They heard that voice say, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. What? Hear him. And then on the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew 17, in those first five verses, by the time you get to the fifth verse, they, they, the only one that was left when Peter wanted to give, make uh, three altars, and this is where we have to be careful, not making altars under God's messengers. <laughs> Honor, yes. Making them, no. Making them be something for you that only you can have and already have in Christ, no. Let's make one for Moses, Elijah, and Christ. Cloud comes down, cloud lifts. <laughs> only one left, Christ. He said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, you hear him. You hear this one. Yes, we have many, many teachers and many mentors, yes, but they're messengers. And I used to say it like this. I used to be a paper boy. I did. I had a paper route, 164 papers. <laughs> Me and Eddie Richard would deliver them. But we didn't write it. We just delivered it. 
It's all we ever did was deliver it. You know, and again, sometimes, a lot of times, I will say a lot of times in my case, what I preach doesn't necessarily mean that I've come to the end of it. Of course, none of us will until we get into heaven and we'll grow. I may preach that you shouldn't do those things. And there could be an area in my life when I'm doing them. (laughs) Should I not preach it? Isn't it still necessary? Mm -hmm. In love, though. In love. But it's necessary for all of us. Therefore, in verse 11, if I know not the meaning of the voice, I will be unto him that speaks like an unsaved person. Barbarian, completely unsaved. I don't understand language. I could care less. I, you know, like in, like in the flesh, I could care less about the language of the Bible. I have a will. I'm going to do whatever I want. Live just like I want. <laughs> That's what we do in our flesh, right? Will be, and he that speaks will be like a barbarian unto me. What is that saying? Listen. And this is where all of us, all of us, look at 1 Corinthians 15, 33. It says this, be not deceived. And really what it's saying in the original is stop being deceived. It's present imperative. He's not asking us the authority and protection of his love for us because we're not our own in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. We're not our own. We were bought with a price. What makes us think we have a right to be the way we want to be? <laughs> and God will lovingly, and this is why we say, and uh, we say this, he will lovingly chastise us, lovingly chastise us, because we don't deserve to be corrected, do we? It's only grace, that grace in Titus 2, 11 and 12, that teaches us to deny all ungodliness. It's the only way we can do it. And who does he give that grace to in James 4, 6 and 1 Peter 5 and verse 6? Those that he's humbled. That will say, okay, I know I can't do it, put it on. <laughs> and the yoke, What is wrong with that? He wants us to be so yoked up and so intimate with him. One is so near to another. I think it's 41.16 of Job, that no air can pass between them. No irritation, no suspicion, you know. If I'm rightly related with God, do you think that I would be suspicious of another believer? I, I couldn't be. I couldn't be at all. I would never be. I'd be so protected. And then even if I couldn't fellowship with them, I could still protect them in a loving prayer for them. It's so beautiful when we think about it. But as we close this, it says this, stop being deceived. Now, who deceives in Revelations 12, 9? It's the enemy. He deceives. And if he deceives a believer, he's deceived them so that he can accuse them. In Revelations 12, 10, who does he accuse? Those that are dearest to Christ. And you and I, you and I, are dear to him. Very dear to him. Extremely dear to him. To the point where he would give us his own life. Shed his own blood to do that. We're dear to him. And so he says, be not deceived. Stop being deceived. Evil communications. Communications here in the original's companions. You need to be around those that speak with the right voice. And we're all being taught and we're all growing. And thank God in local assemblies, we always have a provision to come back to God in a right, in a right image and, and uh, identification with ourselves and with each other. And that's called forgiveness. Because we have to always remember forgiveness is the confirmation of God's love for us. 
He's constantly doing. So when we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to what? Forgive. What's that? To bring us back to a place where he's loving us. Loving us. So Peter, remember when Peter, he heard the voice of the Father. He heard that voice. It was awesome, wasn't it? You're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus was telling him, you know where that thought came from? You know where that voice came from? My father, it didn't come from you. But you received it. Ooh, now it's yours. But then, ooh, Jesus started talking about the cross. You bring the, you bring the cross into the preaching, ooh, and areas, oh boy. Ooh, you like to be cut, don't you? You like to be pricked by the word. <laughs> as soon as that comes in, boy. He told Jesus, he said, you will, you will never, I will never let you do that. <laughs> and what did Jesus say? He looked right at Peter. The same time when he said, Peter, you received the voice of the Father. And I heard that. That was awesome. But right away, right away, then, what? He said, get behind me who? He didn't say Peter, did he? No, because he was positioned in, in Christ. He said, get behind me who? Wrong voice. Wrong voice. You see, the voice in us, the voice in our flesh, does not want a single thing to do with Christ. We may declare it. Be not deceived. <laughs> Evil communications or companions corrupt good manners. So instantly Peter received whose voice? It's so easy for us to do. We've said before, I know this. The easiest thing for me to do is to forget God. Forget him. So easy to do that. And we're going to close this this morning, and I really want to get into it as God leads, if he so leads, uh, tomorrow about these voices. But we'll leave with this, this fact. The sheep hear his voice. There's only one voice, only one, in John 10, 3, 14, and 27. That's the voice of our Absolute shepherd. Did you know there's only one shepherd in Ecclesiastes 12, 11? That's not your pastor. That's Christ. <laughs> I want to make that one clear. <laughs> and we all need shepherds, and God raises them up when they're connected to him. And their gift functions uh, through him without any question about that. But there's only one voice. So what we see is this. We see what? There's God's voice right? There's Christ's voice. Is there a difference between those two voices? No. In John 10, 30, I and the Father are one. One voice. There's Satan's voice. There's the believer's voice. There's the voice of the unsaved. And there's the voice of the fleshly, worldly Christian. And there are many voices in the world. Many. And we're going to see that coming up. There's many voices in the world, but none of them are without significance. There's a purpose involved. We're going to see that through the enemy's subtlety and this malevolent, evil, evil, ingenious, wicked. He has evil brilliance, by the way, if you want to say that. It's almost like so insane. He's so insane. But none of them are without significance. None of them. See, his voice, the voice of grace, the voice of us receiving through dependence, it does away with all fear, all fear. It does away with all condemnation. 
I mean, who else could it be said to in Romans 14, 22? Happy is the man that condemns not himself. Well, who's, the, who's that only man? Romans 8, 1, the man that's in Christ. Are you in Christ? Is God condemning you or me about anything? Never. He already did that. He already did it. There's no condemnation to them that are in Christ. So that does away, condemn, no condemnation, no guilt. What does that do away with all irritation and all suspicion? There's no irritation in grace. No suspicion in love. Notice, and love only flows through grace. See? And thank God for that. So in Romans 14, 22, as we close this morning, happy is the man that condemns not himself. Why? Because he's not condemned by God. Happy is the man that condemns not himself and the thing that he allows. Did I allow it? Was it not of him? I confess it. And instantly experience his faithfulness, which is his love, and his just, just justice being met. Isn't that awesome? So that it's always love and never wrath. See, God can only operate in one or the other because he's holy. He's holy. And wrath is holiness with love never being met by that justice being met. And you can't separate them. There's a lot of bad teaching out there that does so in violating our will. That's another thing the enemy does. He violates our will. God will not violate our will. He'll engineer circumstances and situations to cause us to go positive with that free will that he never took away. And I may have a free will, but without submission do I experience freedom. The freedom and the peace that Christ is in Ephesians 2 and verse 14. No. Happy is the man. Yay. That's us in Christ. That's our proper position, by the way. That's the normal Christian life. Happy is the man that condemns not himself and the thing that he allows. In verse 23 of Romans 14, and he that doubts is what? Damned if he eat. Is God damning him? No. Huh? Happy is the man that condemns not himself. And he that doubts, and where does doubt come from? Irritation and submission. No grace, no love. None. See? And he that doubts is damned if he eat. Oh, gosh. That makes me so irritable and suspicious of everything. <laughs> Experientially, but not positionally in Christ. And he that doubts is damned if he eat because he eats. He doesn't feed on what? Dependence, faith. Whatsoever is not of dependence is what? Sin. I'm going to sin. If I don't depend, I will ultimately sin. But thank God, does he even know us after those sins? In Romans 7, 17 and 20. Absolutely not. He knows us in Christ. That's his voice. The one voice that he speaks to us is that voice. And that voice is Christ. And that voice is the substance of our image and our identity. And it's incredible, isn't it? So, Father, thank you this morning for your precious word, for your precious thoughts to us. Thank you for loving us so much. Thank you for taking the time that even after everything that you did in your love through your Son, by the power of the Holy Spirit, even when we enter into failure, you're waiting to be gracious and you lovingly correct us. And we said recently that many times the first step of grace is chastisement. And that means that's prevenient grace. And prevenient grace simply means that he's still going to be gracious with me even when my will isn't involved. That's how much he loves us. Father, thank you so much for your anticipative love 
in John 13, 19, and 14, 29, and your provenient grace so that you can bring us to a place to receive it and function in, with you and in you in intimacy. In Jesus' name, amen.